back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. Lance, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. How are you, Tim? I'm doing great. Tonight's episode, and in fact, all of November's episodes are brought to you by Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And may I add, happily brought to you by Blue Apron. You'll get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash missing. Okay, now to our guest for this episode. He is a man who works for an investigation company called MJA Inc. Investigations. His name is Mark Harper. He has been working on the Maura Murray disappearance on and off since 2005. Maura's case was case number 61 when they got involved, and Mark is one of three founding members of the group. They do their best to keep their names and profiles out of the public spotlight. They focus on the case. They focus on bringing closure to the families. And it was a uh, it was a really interesting experience talking to them. Yes, and they've uh, focused on searching as well um, with Mr. Murray. So, uh, so they do have some relation to the family. It is a pretty interesting conversation. He is uh, a new... Um, sort of character, if you will, to most of the members of this community. But uh, he is legit, and the more you Google him, the more you look at him, the more legit you'll sort of find him to be. Yeah, I wouldn't put a lot of stock into whoever designs their website. Don't you know? Don't go to their website and think you're going to see a slick. And I'm, I'm ho- I hope I don't insult anybody on that end. But don't think you're going to see a slick, uh, a slick website um, geared towards. Uh, user friendliness it's uh mostly for contact information and a description of what they do well what are the chances they're going to be great at investigation and websites now real quick before we get to the interview i just want to say that as with all the interviews that we've conducted and all the people that we've met and those who have investigated this case we still remain very impartial he's got his theories mark does and this interview is by no way a means of Tim and I revealing any thoughts or theories that we have on the case at this point. Start by telling us your name and and what you do. Okay, my name is Mark Harper. I'm one of the three founding partners of a group called MJA Inc. Investigations. We do um, search and investigative work for missing persons, uh, unsolved homicides, and uh, we've even done consulting on... um, getting bodies exhumed, whatever the family needs, we try to do. And this is something that you do on a professional level, or do you have a a day job? Uh, Well, I did have a day job. I don't, uh, at this time, I'm um, close to retirement age, but most of our staff, uh, this is all volunteer work. Uh, The reason this company was started, uh, we had a family member who was murdered, and so uh, out of 44 of us, 18 of us is related in some way, and this is what we chose to do. And 
I had past an investigative experience as far as working undercover on the streets for every kind of agency you can name, all the alphabet. So uh, I've had a lot of experience, and some of our other staff has a lot of experience in this type of work. And other than the website that you have online, you don't really put yourself into the into the public uh, eye at all. Um, it's pretty new to us, Tim and myself, that uh, that you were involved in the investigation of uh, the disappearance of Maura Murray. Uh, what's your reasoning behind keeping yourself out of the public eye? Well, um, see, we have a lot of ongoing undercover operations, so we always tried to stick in the background. And then... Um, it came to a time where we needed a story to be put out, and this country paper wouldn't put out the story unless we revealed our true identities. And so, like we always said, uh, it's not about us, it's about the case. So we gave them our identity, and they done the story. We got some very good results. And we have been on the media several times. Uh, as far as being on the media, we've actually had media cameras go out with us on searches. What cases have you worked on um, that we might know and that you can speak about? One of the most important cases, uh, see, I'm originally from Indiana. I come up here on business, up here in um, Champlain, New York is where I started. Liked it, ended up staying up here. Now I live in Plattsburgh, New York. But um, some of the cases we worked on, is the most famous one is abduction of Shannon Sherrill on October 5th, 1986 in uh, Thorntown, Indiana. Okay, we worked on, uh, this way, we worked on the Brianna Maitland case, uh, the Audrey Heron case, Elizabeth Gill out of Missouri. She come up missing when she was two and a half years old on June 13th, 1965. And we have a 99% chance of believing she is still alive, and we're trying to locate her. That's impressive. Well, we have evidence that directs us that way. As far as outcomes on cases, on the Shannon Sherrill case, it's been an ongoing feud between us and the Indiana State Police. Um, we know who the killer is. The killer is locked up. He was locked up in 1988. He was a 1980s child serial killer. We have an informant to that fact. Matter of fact, there's three informants from two different states that uh, gave us the information. And the, one of the informants that was a cellmate with the killer for five years over in Ohio, he's the one I mainly deal with, and he's produced a lot of information. And we've taken all those facts. We've had other investigators look at it. We've had national groups look at it, and they all say, that there's enough evidence to prosecute this killer, but Boone County, Indiana prosecutor, has failed to even do anything. So our object of it, we done a national podcast, was get it out of the prosecutor's hands and get it into the FBI hands. And then another case was consultant on. The mother was trying to get her son's body exhumed because they said he committed suicide. She didn't believe it. Okay, the holdup was the next Ken was the wife. She wouldn't sign the papers to have the body examined. So uh, us and a few other groups got together, and we found a way around that law, and we done a national podcast on May 25th, and as of June 2nd, they exhumed the body that quick. 
and uh, it's going to be ruled, from all indications, it's going to be ruled from suicide to homicide. You said that you, um, in one of your previous cases, you had some trouble with the uh, state police. You said, do you find that, and my question is, do you find that you have that problem a lot with law enforcement with your group? On this case, it was really strange because uh, the Lieutenant Heck of Indiana State Police, he's retired now. We had a very good working relationship. We started in 2001, and his district uh, in Marion County, Indiana, a lot of our cases fell in his district, so we had weekly contact. Well, everything was fine until it came to the Shannon Sherrill case, and it's because um, the Indiana State Police didn't even have a case that Thorntown Marshall did, and with the assumption that if he needed help, he would call somebody in. Well, that call never came, and we produced evidence that we had to release to the public. And so that that's the territorial thing that he feels we should have came to him first before we released that information. Well, to us, we had no choice. The family told us to release the information, and um, we released it on press release. Well, this reporter... That's all she focused on was that press release and about this inmate. And she called us up and said, look, you give me everything you need. I'll get you the name of the inmate that wrote the letter and the killer. Well, the family agreed to give her all that information. And in eight days, she had the informant's name that wrote the letter to the Thorntown Marshal Sheriff. And she had the serial killer which he was already locked up. And even after all this happened, Indiana still wasn't in tune. So the Ohio prison investigator called me personally, asked me if I wanted to interview this inmate, which I did. I've interviewed him several times. How did that go? Great, great. I mean, it's, uh, okay, let's put it this way. This investigation has led to 17 different states. We're talking... Uh, 50 plus victims, most of them female children. And we know at one time he had taken a male child from the evidence that uh, was recovered in one of his old homes. There is a male deposit of DNA. Well, he always said he never uh, killed males. Well, we know that is a lie because he killed his own child by shaking him to death. Well, that's that's horrifying. Um, Before we get into... Maura Murray, I have a quick question. What's it like interviewing someone who you know has killed children? It's very surreal. And see, that's another thing. We don't play politics. We don't do none of that. We go for the juggler. And uh, so we have props we use, and it's on our own terms. And the way it is in Ohio... We have, like, what you call an open gate pass. We call them, tell them when we're coming, and we're there from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The prison, you mean? Yes, in their interviewing. And there's no guard in the room with us, or there's no guard posted outside. So, more or less, anything goes. Mark, you mentioned that you had a uh, a brief interaction with Haverhill's finest up there when you were up there recently. How did that go? Well, it happened on October uh, 18th. 
And do you want the cleanup version or the regular version? No, I think we lean more towards the regular version. Okay, well, I was about um, two rows in from the doorway, and I'm, there was a car on each side of me. And all of a sudden, uh, in front of me, which I was looking out the windshield, so it had been in front of me, police officer pulled up and said, uh, in a sedan, said Haver Hill, and uh, he got out of his car, and he come walking right over to me, left his car there right on the road, and uh, anyway, I had my window down because I was smoking a cigarette, and uh, he come up to me, and he said, uh, I see you're back again, and I said, yes, we are, and um he said, well, when do you plan on going home? And I says, uh, when, I, when we get our work completed. And uh, he gets closer to me. He puts his um, hands up on top of the hood of the car. He bends his head down. He says, listen. He says, I want a fucking date when you're going home, and I want one now. And I looked at him, and I says, how about this? How about none of your fucking business? We're not breaking no laws. And that was the end of it. I rolled up my window, and what he said after, I don't have a clue. He stood there for about 15, 20 seconds after I rolled up the window, ranting and raving, and I just ignored him. Where did this go down? The Walmart parking lot in Woodsville there. And I took my crew in there. We had to pick up some things, and they were inside, and I was parked outside of the door. I was, like I said, I was about two, about two rows deep, uh, probably four or five cars. And it just amazed me how he just spotted me. It made me believe somebody placed a phone call. Do you think that you were followed there, or was this just that he had been there in the parking lot and happened to see you? And was this somebody that you had seen in previous searches while you were up there? Did you know who this person was? I don't know his name, but I've seen him on uh, previous searches. And um, as far he wasn't in the parking lot, I've seen him pull in the parking lot. And like I said, he come right up to right front of my car. The only reason he didn't pull in front of my car, there's other cars there. But like I said, he blocked two cars just to get out and to talk to me. And it just struck me kind of odd after it was over and everything. Either he got a phone call or uh, he had seen us in town or whatever. It, you know, it just didn't make no sense to me. Why do you think they don't want you working on this? We're a volunteer group. And... Um, they don't want outsiders in. Matter of fact, there's been other groups that's offered their assistance where they have to have uh, police uh, permission to come in, and they were were refused. Well, where we we try to get their permission to work together, but if they say no, we go about our business. We don't we don't have to follow what other volunteer groups have to follow because. See, they have tax stamps and all that. We're, we don't have a tax stamp yet. We're waiting for one. But, like I said, until that all falls in effect, we don't have to follow those rules as far as uh, uh, police jurisdictions and all that. 
I mean, we can ask if they want to work together or can we assist in any way or whatever. And like I said, if they say no, we just go about our business and do what we're supposed to do. Now, were you under the impression that he had waited until you were alone in the car before approaching you, or it was just a coincidence that the rest of your team went inside before he showed up? It was just a coincidence, because I seen him coming in the parking lot there, and oh, okay. he, swung, he swung around, because the way he was going, he had to swing around to come down that one road to uh, talk to me. And uh, maybe that's when he's seen the car. I, I don't have a clue. But that car, we've only used that car going up there maybe three times. It's usually our vans that we have. And um, so, yeah, it just struck me kind of odd. And then, like, New York plates, and everybody says, well, you know, you can't go by New York plates. Well, a lot of police agencies, that's what they do. They pick out out-of-state plates. That's just the way they are, you know. And this overall is something that you're not unfamiliar with, right? Oh, no, no. This, we don't have no trouble like that in Vermont because the police uh, involved in that, they know what we're doing, what we're trying to do. And uh, But, the, yeah, there's other jurisdictions where uh, we've gotten threatened and everything. Matter of fact, uh, we had one police agency told one family that, if they didn't get rid of us, they was putting their loved one's case back up on the shelf, and they wouldn't work on it until we was gone. Well, we produced the information. The family felt comfortable enough to stand with us, so they told that state police in that state to go screw themselves. They would stick them with our company because we found out all the information that we gave the state police. And say that's what I mean. We give them information, we turn it over to them, it leads somewhere, and then they cut us out of the investigation when we gave them the information to begin with. And, you know, well, I just, I know it's an ongoing investigation and everything, but I just don't think that's right. For the simple fact, they wouldn't have had that information if it wasn't for us. When you give them something, it leads somewhere, you shouldn't be throwing out the investigation. Let's go into uh, Morris' story. How did you get involved with that case? We got originally involved in the Brianna Maitland case on April 3rd, 2004. And when the Klaus kids moved out after they'd done their search, uh, we took over, which the official date was April 10th, but we was there for the Klaus kids' search. And um, anyway, our search parameters kept pushing us towards New Hampshire. And uh, so then the closer we got to New Hampshire, uh, we had heard about Moore's case, which at the time we hadn't. And uh, and then after talking to the Maitlands, they knew uh, a little about Moore and they had talked to Mr. Murray. 
And I just explained to them that the search area is heading that way. And so, more or less, we decided to do Moore's case. Brand is, is our 59th case. Moore is our 61st case. And so, we decided since we're already there in the area, why not? And then, um, like I said, there's a lot of people that doesn't agree with this, but I think we've produced enough evidence that states that both cases could be related. So that was another big issue. And uh, on something like that, we're definitely going to be jumping on it. And uh, there are the two cases that really sticks out. Then afterwards, the more investigation we done, we found out there's several girls in that area that's come up through missing through the years. And then also a big turning point of all this, most of these girls come up missing during the ski season. So that's another big red flag. So um, anyway, that's how we got involved in Morris because we believe there's a link there between the two of them. They only happen 90 miles apart, and our search parameters on Miss Maitland is heading towards New Hampshire. And uh, the dumping ground in between which has been used since the 1930s, different killers has used this area for dumping ground, is uh, a town called Heartland, Vermont. So uh, anyway, like like I say, working towards that way, and then, like I said, end up working towards New Hampshire. And uh, and then, like I said, there's, there's a lot of good things that uh, we learned on uh, Miss Murray's case that um, I believe... Uh, a lot of people didn't take notice. And see, here's what, here's what we do. All the things that's on this website that's in a negative light of Miss Murray and her family, we call that white noise. See, in no way is that going to help us find where she's at. In no way is that going to help us to a suspect. So we call it white noise. So we try to drown all of that out and stick to the facts of the case. When you do that, a lot of good things happen. Just to recap, what brought you to Maura's case was Brianna Maitland's case. Brianna Maitland was about a month after Maura. And how how far is the distance between those two uh, those those two scenes? Well, um, it depends on what mapping thing you use, but um, the highest one's been ninety miles apart. Also, um, there's if you want to call it the direct route, there is direct route to that area, but um, with the Maitland case and Moore's case, the way we're looking at it and everything, okay, on the Maitland's case, we don't believe they use the direct area to head that way for the simple fact is, in the winter, this uh, little state highway wouldn't have been passable. And so we know they had taken all the route. Same way with Mora. Um, see, we when we go up there, we put everything in our phone, GPS, and everything. Well, sometimes it takes you a roundabout way. Well, I believe that's also what happened to Miss Murray. She put in where she was going, and I, get, I, I think it gave her a roundabout way when she could have took uh, where she was heading. She could have took major highways where there would have been traffic, not a highway like 112, which I've understood by Mr. Murray, she knew that road pretty good, but I'm just looking at 
the weather factor, all the turns and the hills and on that road. And so, like I said, um, there's there's a lot of um, what I call uh, questions that should have been answered by law enforcement, which they're not going to admit. Did we have more than one perpetrator working in the area when they come up missing, which we have found out in the past uh, with the Connecticut River Valley serial killer that uh, they thought it was one guy. They get one guy commits suicide. They think that's the end of it. Killings go on. They corner another other guy. He commits suicide. But the killings and abductions are still going on. So that leads me to believe there was three perpetrators working the Connecticut River Valley, and nobody put it together. And so, once again, back on uh, Miss Maitland and Miss Murray, nobody has put this together for the simple fact is there is no evidence left behind. And we think that is the signature. He goes to great lengths to make sure he doesn't leave nothing behind. So you're saying that this this particular serial killer with this um, this theory is that his his calling card is the is absence is the absence of of a calling card. Yeah, you're not gonna find nothing. It's interesting that you create that you have that that way of thinking on this, where most people would look at it and and say, well, there's no evidence pointing to a particular uh, serial killer or a particular killer, so we have to look in another direction. I find it really interesting. It's really fascinating to me that you see that as a calling card. Yeah, because, and that's from past experience. And um, then you have these killers that direct you away, and, and usually they're the ones that get caught first. Instead of just, you know, leaving alone, and then you, then you have these ones that like to contact the media and the police and all that. Well, you know, so I'm saying this guy that we're talking about, he leaves nothing behind. As far as I know, he's never made no contact with no media agency or law enforcement agency. And from my understanding, since they did find foreign DNA on the Maitland case, and from my understanding, it's been entered, whoever this person might be, has never been never committed a felony serious enough to have his blood taken and entered in the CODIS. So there's another factor we're looking at. So we might not necessarily can go with uh, people who's done crimes like this in the past because so far there's not a hit in CODIS. And whoever this character is, he's very slick, he's very good, and he's going to be hard to catch. get processed uh, Miss Murray's car like we did Miss Maitland's and uh, so we really don't even know what uh, the lab done in New Hampshire but we do know what was done on Miss Maitland's car because we processed it after so uh, I wish we had the opportunity to do Miss Murray's because then we could tell what was done and what wasn't done when you say the lab do you it, did a lab actually go through Mora's car? Because I, 
Those my understanding should have been done by the New Hampshire State Police or Haber Hill. One of them should have went through it. Yeah, if they didn't. Yeah. That, there's another red flag. <laughs> I mean, that's something that I'm sure we're going to get. Uh, we'll get some feedback on whether or not they did because I haven't heard about. I mean, maybe just calling um, a thorough search like a lab. Maybe they did a thorough search, you know. And uh, but I've never. Have you, Tim, heard like? Oh, the lab looked over the car. No, but I got to imagine they tried to find any dna samples or fingerprints yeah right? i was i was yeah we're not DNA, talking like the 60s fingerprints. they should have done what is required on something like that see the the deal about the zoom body in louisiana see the thing of it is they never done an autopsy or a death investigation they never took photos so we had no pictures of the blood splatter how the body was located when people in the house admitted to moving the body and all that. Well, see, when you don't have an investigation like that, you have nothing to go back on. Well, we found the law in Louisiana that it's required, even if it's a suicide, to do a death investigation. And that's how we hung him out to dry and got it done. And so the same way if um, uh, Miss Murray, they, no matter what, if it was a car accident, after they found out that she was actually gone, the car should have been fingerprinted and used alternative light sources for DNA. They should have done everything possible. So it, it sounds like that you have a working relationship with the Murray family. Uh, when did that begin, and how is that relationship? Well, it started, uh, we met Mr. Murray in uh, Wells River, I believe is what it's called there, and at a motel yep. and in November 2005. Uh, we explained to him who we was and how we operate, and said so another thing. Once we take on a case, we don't stop until it's done, and that's including appeals. And um, we just, you know, explained to him everything we was doing, that, and also we was involved in the Maitland case. And I just, you know, laid down the services that we would provide, and most of that, most of it at that time had to do with searching. And so, uh, a matter of fact, um, the 19th, okay, we was in uh, New Hampshire the 17th and 18th. On the 19th, I just talked to Mr. Murray and uh, told him what we'd done, what we had found, and what we was going to be doing in the near future. Okay, there's people, they watch different interviews, and they say, well, uh, Mr. Murray and Bill and his mother's hiding something. It's not that they're hiding things. It's things they can't talk about to the public because they've been asked not to, or there's something going on in the background where they can't talk about it. And see, everybody should learn that about a case, that when it's an ongoing investigation, you just can't throw everything out there, or your suspect's going to flee. In no shape or form do I believe that Mr. Murray knows where his daughter's at. No shape or form do I believe that the boyfriend or his mother knows where she's at. And I don't believe her friends knows where she's at. And then also, let's look at, let's say, let's look at the past mistakes they said Miss Murray's made in the past. Okay, if you take them mistakes and add it up, and then you take, she goes and makes herself disappear. And in 12 years, you're telling me she ain't made a mistake. 
well, that's just wrong from all the mistakes she had made before. So it don't even, that don't even make sense. That's why we call it white noise. We try not to listen to that and deal with the facts. How do you know what white noise is and what isn't white noise? A good example was about the student that got hit at the university hit and run. Okay, that's what I call white noise because it proved to be it wasn't Miss Murray. Okay, that's what I call white noise. Okay, about her being an informant. Well, I'm here to tell you, I have three active CI members, okay? I do know this. When you're an informant, your photograph is taken, your fingerprints are taken, and DNA is taken. And that's to protect you if something would happen, they have everything on file. Okay, if you don't register a person in that way, any information that person passes on to you is null and void when it comes court time. So I don't believe that she was a confidential informant because, for the simple fact, there'd be paperwork on it. They could, they can't keep it hidden. And uh, if somebody did do something off the books with her, it wouldn't amount to nothing because it couldn't be used in court anyway because she wasn't registered as a CI. So that's another thing that that goes out the window. Oh, about the credit card ring theft. Okay, it had to do with one credit card number. So that flies out the window. See, that's why I'm talking about white noise. This has nothing to do with her disappearance. It has nothing to do with who took her. And like I told you in previous conversations, we have three uh, cases where the victims were strippers. Okay, we have cases where we know they were drug addicts. Okay, we don't care who you are, what color you are, you still have a right to live, and if some harm comes at you, you still have the same form of justice that any other person has. makes you so convinced uh, that Mora was met with foul play? For a simple fact, her remains hasn't been found yet. They're very well hid. And um, I don't believe she'd done an elaborate scheme to uh, make herself disappear because there's a lot easier ways of doing that. And uh, one easy way I could tell you is uh, her vehicle on the campus was hardly ever used. So why not just leave the car there and just walk away and nobody's going to know that she's missing for a few days. Where a car accident, they're going to know right away. To backtrack just a little bit, you said that you were up there on the 17th and 18th, and I just want to clarify that you were up there on the 17th and 18th of this month. October, yes. What were you doing there? Going over, well, once again, paperwork on the search areas. Um, There's some I was concerned about, so we went over them again, and and uh, that's when we discovered this one area that so far we haven't found nothing on paper that's been searched. Mr. Murray doesn't remember it. And more or less we was backtracking because uh, we've had a lot of volunteer searches up there, and uh, I'm just trying to put uh, a whole map grid together and see on uh, Miss Maitland's side, we're only 27 miles away from Heartland, Vermont. Okay, on uh, 
Miss Murray's side were only uh, 47 miles away from Heartland, Vermont. That's how far our search area has branched out. And once again, I'm not the first one to admit that when we need help on this search, we need help. And we're asking for a volunteer search and rescue group that does mountain work to assist us. And so far, we haven't gotten no replies. But the equipment we have isn't going to do it. It's too deep for our equipment to even reach it. And then plus, we're not very experienced in gathering evidence in a location like that. And so we want a professional mountain team to go in and uh, do it to make sure we don't screw nothing up in the process. So this is the area that you were talking about was a body dumping ground in Vermont. No, this is an area not close to the crash site. There's no evidence that says that this area was searched. On all my volunteer uh, search paperwork, it's not mentioned. And um, the other volunteers and uh, the family and everything, okay, it's not mentioned. And uh, matter of fact, when I explained to Mr. Murray, he says, well, then somehow it was missed. And I, and I believe that could have been the case. So uh, it's a prime location, and so, like I said, we do need help on it, and uh, that's what we're working towards, and we want it before the first snow hits, but if not, as soon as the weather permits, whether we have to go out and get the equipment or whatever, uh, we're going to get it done uh, when the weather breaks in the spring if we don't get it done before. So is this an unofficial call to through the podcast are you are you putting it out there unofficially or officially through the podcast officially that we need a mountain a professional mountain and research group to search this area for us okay there you go so for people to reach out to you if they feel like the fit might be right and they're the uh you know they're 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 willing to 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 go about this search with you. Uh, what's the best way to contact you? Okay, the best way to contact us is just Google MJA Inc. Investigations. All of our work will pop up. You pop up on our website. Our website has all of our contact information, our phone numbers, email addresses, and then also uh, if people. Once this remain anonymous, we can even take care of that. And uh, plus, we're not planning on announcing the search anyway or the location because we don't want onlookers. Okay, so interesting interview with Mark Harper. What do you think, Lance? What I liked about this interview, after listening to it a couple of times and thinking about it, was how dogged they are in all of their cases. He told us that Mora was the 61st case that they've worked on, and they haven't really been together for a period of time where you'd imagine them to have worked on 61 cases. They have a really genuine desire to solve cases and to bring people to justice and to bring closure to the families and the friends of those who are waiting and who have seemed to have law enforcement, I wouldn't say give up on them, but move on 
to a higher priority. And they feel like a group that takes it seriously. That just because something else goes up a notch or goes up a, a rung on the priority ladder, that's when, that's when they can really sink their teeth into it. And we just wanted to thank Blue Apron again, our sponsor for this month. And so please support them. Check out blueapron.com slash missing three free meals with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash missing. And thank you very much for listening, everybody.